Hello, I'm Brian Mastroianni, and welcome back to Resolve Talks, the podcast from Resolve Global Health, where we speak with experts from a range of industries about what is holding us back from building healthier societies around the world. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ernest Darko. He is a globally recognized leader in healthcare management, a co-founder of Broadreach Group. Dr. Darko has served as an advisor to governments and national authorities alike on their health systems, assisting with program implementation and resource mobilization. Dr. Darko is passionate about social entrepreneurship, figuring out sustainable market-based solutions to solve big health and socioeconomic challenges for the most underserved. Among his many roles, he serves on the boards of the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship and the Global Development Incubator. He previously served as a member of the United States President's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS, on the board of the Medicines for Malaria Venture, and on the Gilead Health Policy Advisory Board. He is especially known for his pioneering work spearheading Botswana's antiretroviral treatment program, MASA. That expertise makes Dr. Darko the perfect guest to come on today to discuss what has been one of the most enduring global health issues of our time, the global HIV AIDS epidemic. As we inch closer to the UN AIDS fast track target of ending the epidemic by 2030, where are we in reaching that goal? What impact can tools like at-home HIV testing initiatives have in reaching people who might be falling through the cracks through more traditional outreach methods? And what challenges from cultural stigma to barriers to access stand as stubborn impediments in the way of helping us reach that global goal? Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're so excited to have you here um, to discuss uh, the state of uh, global HIV care today. Um, we so appreciate having you here. Thank you so much. Um, I think a, a good place to start, uh, you know, for, for us at Resolve Talks, the general question we're always trying to answer is, uh, what is holding us back from building uh, healthier societies and, and how can we get there? And I think uh, with uh, HIV, that's a topic that obviously plays uh, so well into that question because it is such an enduring health issue of our of our era of our times for the past forty years. Um, from your perspective, what is your overall view or overall prognostication for where we are today, especially in hitting those uh, UN AIDS targets for twenty thirty? Well, thanks. Uh, so currently, we're at. 85, 88, 92. So meaning 85% of people uh, who of people who are HIV positive know their status. Of that 85%, 88% are um, effectively on HIV treatment. And of that 88%, 92% of them um, have the virus suppressed. So that's the global total at the moment. Um, so do you remember the prior to the current triple 95 targets, we had the triple 90 targets. So relative to the triple 90 targets, this is actually not too bad, right? We're almost at the triple 90. But I do believe that to get to the 95, we're now talking about the hardest part of the response to get those last few percentage points, right? So like anything in life, that last little bit, right? 
is the hardest, like cleaning your room. You make the bed and you know push everything under the bed and it looks 90% better. But if you really want the room clean, you have to steam clean the carpets and remove the, get a ladder to remove the cobwebs from the upper corners, right? That's hard. And I think we're at that stage now in, in the pandemic where the, um, it's very, very difficult to gain one percentage point and it's very easy to slide back five percentage points due to something, a big shock like COVID. Or for example, in, in some of the geographies we were working in Africa, there was big floods that washed away literally some of the clinics or washed away the roads to the clinics. And all of a sudden you get a, a huge drop in numbers um, across this triple 95. So my prognosis at the moment is that um, we're at a stage where we're going for the tricky last few percentage points. Those percentage points are driven by populations that are traditionally hard to reach. They're called key populations. So it would include you know, sex workers, men who have sex with men, uh, young women. Um, these are populations that we basically don't have good models for, for consistently reaching them. So my guess is we will definitely probably hit the nine, the, past the triple 90 target, but I think we will struggle to get to 95 and maintain it. I think a few countries will, but the majority won't. And I think they'll start sliding back and forth somewhere between the 90 and 95, but it'd be very difficult to stay above the 95 because of these uh, traditional, uh, the difficulty of reaching these populations, but also the, 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 the traditional systemic weaknesses in our health system, which doesn't deliver equitable healthcare and is weak. So it's hard to reach these people anyway, um, because the services to reach them aren't really there. Mm. You know, when it comes to trying to reach some of those populations, um, I, I'm curious to maybe looking back a, a bit um, in your career to see some of the lessons that maybe you learned in, in trying to implement really effective approaches to HIV. Um, I know a big inflection point was your work spearheading MASA, which was uh, Botswana's antiretroviral treatment program for our listeners who might not be familiar with it. Uh, and it was the first program of its kind in an African country. Um, what lessons did you learn from that experience and that initiative that maybe could prove instrumental in maybe trying to hit some of those hard to reach groups? Well, thank you. Thank you. Great question. Um, and in fact, in retrospect, um, especially with the experience of COVID, um, one thing really does stand out really mm. strongly in terms of what the lesson that we learned. I don't think we even realized how profound it was at the time, but because it was the first public sector treatment program in Africa, right? Um, we really approach it very much from the initially from the point of view of it is really important for the population to understand what HIV is and therefore to understand what the treatment does, and in particular to understand why you know, you're gonna, in essence, be on lifetime treatment um, for a disease where, for the most part, you feel completely fine, you know, and we're expecting you. And, and on top of that, we're dealing with populations where, for the most part, the first language is not English. You're trying to explain these really complicated concepts of retroviruses and you know, the, even the concept of treatment and not cure you know, in, 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 a, in language that are not English, sometimes the words aren't even there. So, so we, we, I say, very heavily focused, we put more focus on preparing the population and preparing patients um, um, than we did necessarily, oh, are there doctors, are there nurses, et cetera. Yes, we did that too. But for us, what was, we, we, we started the program very much from the premise that 
success or failure is going to be dependent on what this person does or doesn't do in the privacy of their home and in their community. So if we don't get that right, it doesn't matter whether we get the pills for the, to them for the first time or not. What we want was an empowered patient who really knows for the most part how to take care of themselves and therefore is empowered to negotiate um, through the minefield that is the health system, right? Mm -hmm. So spent, I'd say, more budget actually on patient education, community mobilization, right? Uh, we knew destigmatization was going to be important. So working, for example, with religious groups so that they would actually preach, um, you know, an HIV positive message and acceptance, you know, within their congregations, et cetera. We spent a lot of time on that. So I'm not actually surprised that Botswana actually right now is still one of the best performing uh, programs in the world. Because when COVID came, for example, and then we saw, for example, all this fake news with vaccines and the pushback, there had not been a, a, a similar sort of um, uh, ground game of preparing the population, making sure they had the right message before the wrong one came, right? Almost inoculating them against the wrong messages. So our lesson was, you really, really, this is about a person at the end of the day, and it's about communities at the end of the day. And if you, and if you don't get it right at that level and put a lot of resources into it, um, it doesn't work. And in my experience of 25 years of implementing public health programs on the ground, I, I, I always say that the issue of patient education and, and community mobilization, it's like, I call it like the, 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 park, the, the parking structure uh, equivalent in buildings where, you know, you, when you get, go into the parking of a mall, it's, you know, you, the parking spot, it's like someone just thought an afterthought, like, oh, we built a mall, oh, we need some parking, right? And then they squeeze <laughs> mm -hmm. something in real size cars don't really fit around the corners and stuff like that. And in general, this issue is handled like that in healthcare. We, we focus on other doctors, other nurses, other drugs, et cetera, right? Are the doctors trained? And then at the very end, oh, we need, need to do some patient education, usually on the day you're launching the program. And then you wonder why people aren't lined up for their treatment or for their vaccine, or why they drop off treatment as soon as they feel well, et cetera. So to me, the biggest lesson is paying equal attention to the supply side and the demand side. And that equal attention must be expressed in terms of quantum of budget as well. Mm. Uh, when you were talking about that, that analogy to the uh, the building, the, the mall structure and, and trying to get all those those gears working at once, if you will. Um, how, how important is this idea of collaboration in implementing an effective HIV treatment and prevention strategy in a community? I can imagine that can be a big challenge too, in some ways, to try to leverage local governments and and um, federal governments, and then yes. people on the ground who are healthcare workers all all at once. Uh, well, I mean, you don't know the half of it in terms of mm. how it was all about collaboration. <laughs> so, the Botswana program, just just for, um, for for a bit of history, it was actually conceived and implemented as a public-private partnership. So it was formally a partnership between the government of Botswana. Um, the, the Merck Company Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, and then it pulled in every other partner and stakeholder in the country, NGOs, private sector, academic institutions, including international institutions. So we had, you know, I'd say dozens, if not hundreds of partners who needed to collaborate in lockstep to make this thing successful, right? And, um, and so, and, and as you can imagine, each partner is there with their own special interests, their own idiosyncrasies, their own competitiveness. So orchestrating this, you know, <laughs> and in essence, like herding these cats towards a common outcome, that was what the work was. I, I, 
I, I, when I ran the program, we, we worked, my team, we worked 22 hour days and at any, every minute of that day felt like we're juggling like 50, 60 balls at a time. Right. And, and just, just to get the, 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 this thing to work. And so for me, for these big challenges, whether it's HIV, whether it's COVID, whether it's other big rock challenges that we're facing globally, it is absolutely clear that the only way we're going to solve these is through some kind of, you know, collaborative action, right? Collab mass. We have to actually work together to do this. It's not private. It's not public. It's we all have to work together if we're going to solve this. But what I, one thing I do want to point out, just from my observation and having done this for for a couple of decades now, is that that skill set to orchestrate these partnerships effectively is a very rare skill set, right? And I mean, I'd like to think I did a halfway decent job, but the but there's not a lot of people who can do this. And I think this is something where you see a lot of partnerships are announced, but they don't actually come yield much. They don't really work out because I think this skill set is something that's extremely rare. And one thing I have noticed in particular being having been associated with the Schwab Foundation now for an, a, a number of years, um, where they identify social entrepreneurs. These are people who have been solving some of these big societal challenges, figuring out really creative market-based mechanisms of doing it. They, by definition, have had to do their work through collaborative action. So I found within that group, there's a disproportionate number of people who have that skill set, but nobody calls them. No one comes knocking on their door to say, hey, help us. I, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, and I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to promote myself here, but to give an example, um, the Botswana program was the first in Africa to roll out um, public sector HIV treatment. Currently, even it's ranked as one of the best programs in the world um, in terms of doing this. Um, has anybody come to me and asked me, Ernest, how did you guys do it? No. Right? So that's the, the other thing is there's this element of we don't learn from each other. Uh, nobody seems to learn from each other. Everybody wants to reinvent the wheel. Maybe there's too much glory to be had in you know, every, you know, you conquering your own territory. And I think this is something, again, that holds us back because we could really knock the ball out of the park if we crack this issue of working together. But when, when we're probably spending more equal time competing and jockeying, you know, with each other while we're trying to solve these problems that actually require collaboration, it's no wonder these problems persist and we don't ever seem to actually solve them. And it seems like just very recently and currently we're living through an example of that just with this this very uneven COVID approach exactly. across the world. Exactly. 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 Um, yeah. Um, imagine, imagine with this, if we could just, for example, you know, map where the supply and the demand and be flexible on a global basis to say who needs it, you know. Um, I know we have this much allocated to you, but you know what, you haven't done your demand generation yet, but this other country now needs it in the meantime, and truly coordinate on that basis, as opposed to everybody circling their own wagons and figuring out how to take care of themselves. And yet knowing that COVID, the next variant, is basically a plane ride away, you know, um, and then you're going to be back at square zero, and it's still we behave in this counterproductive way, you know. But again, I, I always say we are products of conditioning. And sort of game theory always says we're going to end up in this worst box. And unfortunately, we tend to play that out more often than not. Well, uh, public health leaders listening, you heard it here first. Collaboration is key. Please collaborate moving forward. <laughs> um, 
take take it from Dr. Darko. Um, <laughs> well, another topic I thought that is really interesting um, regarding HIV. I know Broadreach Group has worked with um, uh, self-testing models as, as an effective tool for reaching some of those hard to reach people uh, who might fall through the cracks. Um, you know, for our listeners who maybe are not familiar with that, I guess, first of all, what what is the self-testing approach to try to um, get people to um, to ensure they're they're getting their HIV testing? And um, how impactful can that be to reach some of those um, harder to reach individuals? Well, so as a as a modality for in particular for those hard to reach individuals where they're highly stigmatized by society, right? And when, and I think it's worth me giving a bit of context when I talk about what this means, right? So for example, in many African countries, um, the, you know, you have, you know, being gay is illegal, right? And some countries are pushing for the death sentence, right? So why would you interact with a, a health facility where in essence, they're kind of obligated to report you if they if they know of it right and the way these countries are often are enacted saying well if we'll punish you if you are aware of somebody and didn't tell us right so i mean they've created the most hostile environment possible for some of these groups in many of these countries being a sex worker is illegal right um meaning if you, again you're discovered you you have to report this person they have to be arrested right so so self-testing is a great modality for people like that to be able to privately basically get a kit, you test yourself, right? Um, you can prick your own finger and, and depending on the country and the program, there's assisted self-testing or unassisted. Um, assisted means, for example, you come to a facility, they tell you, here's the booth, go inside. And then, you know, they'll you know, kind of talk you through the instructions, but you basically do the test yourself. Um, and you, you know you come out and they can you can discuss the result right there and they can maybe link you to care. Unassisted could be in the privacy of your home, but in those cases you might need like a phone number to call in case the result's positive, or in some cases you take a picture of the test. It looks like a pregnancy uh, pregnancy kit, you know the the little two lines. If you get two lines, you're positive. So you take a picture of that, send it maybe to a particular number, and then they would contact you and try to get you into care. So. As a modality for reaching those groups, it's very effective, but does it solve the problem? And, and in my experience, not really, because most of these programs are still run on the basis that after that initial test is viewed as a screening test. You still need to go to a health facility for a actual confirmatory test, and therein, welcome to the minefield, right? So the requirement in terms of now you moving from testing, knowing your status to into care, if that system hasn't changed, if that system is still hostile, et cetera, it doesn't solve the problem. So whereas it, it very effectively can solve one piece of the chain, if the other links of the chain are, are essentially hostile and not working, it doesn't create, you don't get the pull through of that benefit throughout the chain. And what we find ourselves spending a lot of disproportionate time trying to also now create clear a pathway from that awareness of status for those individuals in those groups to be able to receive the right kind of care. And so for uh, people with groups where in essence it's so hostile, like male, men who have sex with men, or if you're gay, um, LGBTQI, um, if you are a sex worker, um, it's, it's really difficult. But for example, young women, right? You can imagine that teenage women, uh, health facilities are just not oriented to, to, to accept you and embrace you and make you comfortable and provide you optimal care, right? They're very judgmental. 
Um, you know, um, if you are a teenager who's technically still under the guardianship of your parents, you know, uh, it's really, really difficult to access services. And so we end up with these situations where we have to now work on, for example, staff attitude, right, and train staff and try and, and uh, encourage them to be inclusive, etc. And those are take, things take time, right? You're talking about people changing people's fundamental mindsets, right, um, about these things. And that takes a lot of time. And that's why some of these things will be a generation maybe to, to really change. And that's why I do believe we'll struggle to get to 95 and maintain it because the requirements to get there require a very, very different uh, enabling environment, which by the way, it's our job to create, but it doesn't switch overnight, right? And so I, I do think it's gonna be challenging in that regard because the game we're playing now is fundamentally a very different game than the early days where it was low hanging fruit with what we have to do now, if we're talking about waiting for people to, for example, stop being homophobic in Africa, you know, we, where we are renowned for the conservative, the deep-seated conservatism, accompanied by heavy dose of hypocrisy, but you know, we're known for that. Um, this stuff is going to be hard to change. It's like talk about changing someone's religious beliefs, right? It's that level of change you're trying to enact, and and that's now the kind of programming we have to do in order to get uh, to truly cross the line and stay above that line, which is uh, the triple 95 and to achieve epidemic control. I can imagine that's very challenging to try to dismantle uh, not just those societal and cultural stigmas, but then also some of those stigmas that probably exist within, uh, you know, uh, health, health groups and health uh, care okay. organizations as well. Uh, do you have any idea of how to push against some of those stigmas and and some of those really entrenched uh, uh, societal roadblocks that maybe are preventing people from getting the kind of treatment and care they need for HIV? Well, so I think for 25 years of public health have made me a pragmatist, right? And, you know, and because we sometimes you just can't wait for society to change before you act. So I think deploying creative strategies where you can reach these groups and provide them the care they need now is critical, right? And usually it means working with them through their networks, right? And, um, and then establishing in essence, an ecosystem, a full treatment ecosystem within their networks um, so that they're dealing with people they can trust. You know, I walk into a clinic and I see people who look like me, uh, who understand my life, when, you know, um, my life is not strange to them. And, it's a safe, protected space in terms of confidentiality, my data, who I am, so that within that safe ecosystem, they can still get the care that they need. And I think it's really important for us to, in essence, it does require a special parallel program for those groups. And then in the in, meanwhile, you now work on trying to change, you know, the mindsets of like, let's say the typical public health care worker in a public hospital, who's who, by the way, is they are, uh, the, some of the biggest perpetrators of the stigma and discrimination, right? So you have to then work over time with them, but knowing that that's a much longer game, if that makes sense. But being pragmatic, I think you have to bifurcate your strategies so that you are ad addressing the immediate needs um, while also trying to get the broader system to embrace it. Because when the broader system embraces it, um, I always say that's when you get the biggest impact, you know? Um, you know, I always say, 
I could get, I could try and build a new system from scratch, or I could just get the, the big government system to perform 10% better. And that 10% better would be a hundred times the impact of me trying to set up a new thing from scratch on, on my own. But that said, in this case, in this particular case, based on how severe this issue is, I do believe you need a bifurcated strategy. Mm. I was curious, uh, you know, obviously there's social change, but then there's a uh, scientific advancement as well. And I, I know a big um, inflection point in recent years has been, um, at least I, I'm based in the US and, and I know that there have been many campaigns around um, U equals U or on, on, um, uh, undetectable equals untransmittable, which for listeners is, um, who might not be familiar with this means as someone who adheres to an HIV medication regimen and remains on it, um, they will have a virally suppressed uh, HIV in their system. They will be unable to transmit it to sexual partners. Um, I guess in that way, it seems like the clouds are lifting a little bit. I guess what role um, has our growing understanding of U equals U um, what role can that play in, in maybe uh, affecting positive change in, in getting to those closer, at least, to those 2030 targets? Um, I, I think it, it has a big role to play. And it, I think it goes a long way in as, as almost like as a foundational truth, uh, almost creating um, almost like the seed, the, 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 the seed that can really destroy a lot of stigma, right, in, in that um, okay, it's, it's the foundation for not saying this is why it should be normalized, HIV should be normalized. Um, however, um, the, in, in the, I'm speaking to the African context um, here. The, the problem you have with a message like that still remains by that you, in many cases, you're dealing with populations who have huge traditional beliefs, right? Um, you know, so for example, take South Africa where I am. There's a, huge number of people, I think the majority of people believe in traditional medicine, believe in, you know, um, you know, um, and, and meaning that they don't believe in germ theory, right? They don't, you know, as a, as a foundational thing, right? They're in, in their world, everything is about alignment with the ancestors and the spirits. And, you know, if something's not going right in my life, um, it's because I'm out of alignment, right? And, um, and that, is not just for disease, it's for like you lost your job or you're having problems in your relationship, right? Or you're um, poor and, you know, so they view that all as in one basket. They don't separate out disease as a separate thing that's going wrong. And I seek it, I seek that uh, redress through uh, something called a doctor necessarily, right? A traditional healer deals with it all for you, right? Including helping you win the lottery, et cetera. <laughs> so, um, so in that world, you know, what does undetectable mean? Right, and that means that that presumed this understands a virus, how it works, how it's transmitted. Does that make sense, right? And so again, it goes back to the issue I started at the beginning. It, have you spent enough time educating this population so that they understand the basic concepts? And I mean, truly understand and embrace those concepts so that then this message lands with the intended effect, right? But if I don't have that understanding of, for example, germ theory or this, then again, it becomes another lost message. And what, in my experience, I found we, again, have not paid enough attention to how we transmit this message now, for example, in South Africa probably has 
30 languages. Nigeria has 400 languages. Kenya may have another 60 languages, right? Think these are concepts that are not very easy to transmit in particular across all these languages. And usually when you don't communicate to someone in their language, you don't get the best understanding, right? So I think the, at the foundation, it is the right thing. But again, it, it, it again to me points us towards the direction strategically where we really have to pay attention to educating our populations and mobilizing them around these concepts so that there's enough baseline understanding so that they then can embrace this message. Same with, for example, COVID vaccination, et cetera, right? If you haven't done the work, then what ends up happening is the population is susceptible to their current beliefs or new beliefs that seem in flavor much more aligned to the way they think, right? And as you've seen, often it's really, really difficult to undo that once it sets in. So, so from my uh, perspective, it's, it's, it was like the best message. Like, for example, when, when we saw that, um, you know, um, life expectancy was, you know, the same as any person, right, with, with HIV, when that finally got to, to parity, right, to the life expectancy. Those are all great messages, right? But again, um, it, it's very much um, based, when we talk about the kind of populations we work with, there's a huge gradient of um, understanding or lack of understanding. And, and if we don't really consciously address that, then it almost doesn't matter that you have these truths because it's not reaching people effectively enough for them, for them then to incorporate it in a way that they change their behavior. So it seems in essence, uh, a, a big uh, important factor is uh, global health leaders and people implementing these strategies really need to go back to that collaboration idea that you're talking earlier, especially with people who are health workers and, and community leaders who are directly in these communities to maybe breach yeah. some of those cultural gaps that you were just touching on. Yeah, if I, if I may give a, a little yeah. anecdote to show you how deep the misunderstanding goes. So in, in the Botswana program, we realized we had to develop very, very simple tools to help people understand how HIV works. So we created these like, like a picture-based tools, no words, purely in pictures. You know, we told the story of HIV. Um, here's a corral that protects your cattle. Your cattle are wealth in Botswana. Um, here's a lion trying to break in. So the, the corral is your immune system. The lion is HIV virus. The cattle is your health, right? And so we use these sort of picture-based analogies and we use it in the waiting rooms. We had videos that would show, that would walk people through this. And it was great for patients and patients loved it. And then guess what we realized? the health workers were actually using those materials more than the patients to understand what HIV was, mm. right? So we took for granted that, oh, the health workers get this. We took, they sat through a, a course and learned about retroviruses and all that, but the, they, didn't, they didn't understand it either. And they were secretly sort of using these materials as their crib notes, right? So this is what I mean by, when you, when you say truly understand, it takes mm. some work, right? Uh, when you cross, culture, cross language, cross literacy levels. Um, and this is what I mean by why it's so important for us to really acknowledge that this is necessary and required, and then start to figure it out. And by the way, make it a default part of our model. For example, COVID comes, we have an outbreak, know that, okay, there are 30 languages, we have to get this right in, and immediately something goes into effect to get us into the right 30 languages. And then you have established channels for getting it to the people because you have a relationship with community leaders, local leaders, mayors, whoever, you know, political, religious leaders, so, and they, and you have formal relationships, so when the message needs to get out, these are our spokespeople who are trusted who can deliver it. 
as opposed to these, we, we start to feel our way organically through this when the pandemic is already on us. And the fact that we haven't done this well for HIV 40 years in tells you why this is such a big problem. Dr. Darko, in, in closing, is there one big wish or hope or um, prediction you have uh, as we get closer to that 2030 marker? And if we have this conversation again, is there some, where would you like to see us in, uh, in the coming years when it comes to HIV globally? Wow. So to me, um, so much of this is based on us knowing what's going on and therefore how to most effectively respond to what's going on. And often we, we don't have the data in place or the intelligence in place to guide what we're doing most effectively. So we end up with a lot of wastage and Africa has the scarcest resources, right? We cannot afford to waste a single bit of resources or effort on the wrong things, things that are not gonna give us the biggest impact. So I think for me, um, the first thing is we really have to pay attention to, can we get this issue of having the right intelligence. Can we solve for that, right? Meaning that we, in, as much as possible in real time, I can tell you these three facilities are causing 65% of my gap in this indicator, right? Or these three communities are the ones that are causing, are driving 80% of the new infections. And I'm talking about down to micro level so that I know that I'm responding most effectively with my scarce resources to the things that actually matter. Right. And so this is one of our approaches in terms of the technology we've built is we, we believe that this kind of information should be at your fingertips proactively fed to you. And this is a great role, I think, for AI, et cetera, to do that kind of heavy lifting where even when you're asleep, you know, it can wake you up with a message saying, by the way, this hospital just dropped seven points in its performance and you need to address it tomorrow. Right. So to me, we need to really evolve our response from this sort of very, I'm looking at data that's six months old and trying to drive forwards to one where I'm looking at what happened today, ideally, and or what's about to happen predictively and responding to that ahead of time. Because I think that's the only way we're gonna get ahead of some of these things. This chase the ball from behind and hope to grab it and dig in your heels and slow it, stop it, won't work. Um, and, and so, we really fundamentally need to rethink this. Second is prevention is king, right? Um, when I got to South Africa in 2006, we were talking about 3.9 million people infected, right? Now we're talking about 8 million people infected. We have 5 million people on treatment right now. So meaning if we had stopped new infections back in 2006, we would have, we have been long blown past, we would be at 100, 100, 100, right? in terms of the triple 90 targets. But because the infections were not stopped effectively, in essence, the triple 90 becomes an ever moving goalpost. So I think for us really turning this on its head and saying, we really have to look at all the drivers and pay them their due attention is really key. So it's not just about treatment, it's about prevention equally. And we've been notoriously, I'd say, mediocre in our, in our success with prevention. And we really, really need to up that up that game. And there's a lot of complexities there, but I think that's why I would say if it was easy, it wouldn't need us, right? So that's really the hard job we have to do. But we do need, I think, more coalescence around and intentionality around some of these things as opposed to um, no, just drive your treatment targets and then not pay attention, for example, to the fact that new infections are out, outpacing you or gonna stay at a pace where you never really catch up.
So I think for me, um, my, pre my prediction is I think we can get there. It will require unprecedented collective action. Um, those skill sets are rare, but they can be found. So I think people should find them whenever, wherever they can and recruit them to actually assist them in their efforts. Um, and then really um, the courage to, to turn things on the head and do things radically different is, is, is important because we're in a different part of the game now. And if we don't do things radically different, then we're not gonna win. Well, Dr. Darko, those feel feel like important words to to close on, and we're so grateful that we have your expertise for this show today. Thanks. So, thank you so much for for joining us, and and um, to our listeners, uh, follow us on Spotify and, and Anchor, and you can listen to our past episodes. And um, we'll see you next time. And Dr. Darko, thank you again so much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. It's been an All honor. Right. Thank you. Thank you.